0: The follow up is simple. Ask a question, listen to the answer, then follow up. I'm your host, Noah Kozlov. Enjoy. The follow up today is with Brian Curtis, the New York Times best selling author. He's written eight books, he's been a mentor of mine. We've been friends for about 13 years. Brian, what's the idea that you pursued as a book, but then realized this just isn't a book after all?
1: It's a great question, Noah. Um, too many to list. Oh. Uh, you know, the, the, there are so many more book ideas that I come up with. Some of them are flash in a pan. Some of them I may spend two or three months working on researching, fleshing out that for whatever reason, never come to fruition. Now, Those reasons could be that the more I dig in, the more uninterested I get, or the more I dig in, the more my agent and I, who I rely on a lot, uh, tells me the publishers would not be interested. Um, Sometimes the marketplace changes. I mean, if you, you know, I'm a nonfiction writer. If you look at the nonfiction uh, bestsellers over the last year, you know, the majority, 60 to 70 percent, have to deal with the current president either for or against or the climate in the country. And so some of it, the market dictates, but I mean, I go back almost 15, 20 years. I have ideas typed out on paper that are in a file cabinet that just, for whatever reason, the the timing wasn't right or my interest wasn't right or the publishing world wasn't interested. So there's a lot of them. As far as specific ideas, I mean, some of them are great sports stories, that I thought could develop into something that the more research I did, there were too many stories that were close to that, that initial idea. Um, You know, uh, children's books, ideas, uh, stories that I would love to do behind the scenes, fly on the wall kind of stories, which is what I've done for some of my books, which is what I enjoy to do. Um, And then obviously the last factor is just me, where I am in my life and my willingness or unwillingness to travel or to be away from the family. So I don't know what the proper literary term is, the idea graveyard or something like that, but there's a lot of them.
0: (laughs) But some of those ideas that you have that where the publisher or your agent will say the timing isn't right, well, when would the timing actually be right for this? Why not just put it out there?
1: yeah, it's a great question. Um, the answer is by the time the market may be right, I probably already moved on in my head to another idea or focus. And the reality is, if there is a book project that I come across that I am dead set on doing, um, you know i'm I'm very fortunate in my life, Noah, where after you've done eight books, uh, and you know I also do some consulting and speaking and things like that, I don't have to do any books right now at this point in my life. And so I can be a lot pickier and choosier about what it is I want to do. So if I came across a book idea that I wanted to do, um, you know, about a third of books are self-published now. If there was a great idea that I wanted to do and no publisher was interested, nor my agent, I can still do the book. I would just self-publish it myself and get it out there if Mm -hmm. I felt there had to be a message. So I don't rely solely on the agent. I mean, they're the ones with the pulse on what, what works and what doesn't. And they've been generally pretty right with my previous books on what the market would, would have an interest in.
0: And those early ones, every week a season, the, the college football book and the men of March inside the lives of college basketball coaches, I know you write nonfiction, but if you want to do fly on the wall and, you don't, and you're not granted that access— Have you ever thought about doing a fictional version of that?
1: Boy, that's a great question. The answer is no, uh, because I've never really thought of it myself. You know, when I first did my, my first book was called The Men of March, where four college basketball coaches gave me all access to them, their team, and their families for a season. And that was Bill Self, who was at Illinois at the time, Steve Alford, who was at Iowa at the time, Mike Bray at Notre Dame, And Steve Lavin who at the time was at UCLA and it's funny that book was kind of born out of necessity I had been an on-air reporter for Fox Sports Net based in Los Angeles and they started having drastic cutbacks and I was one of them and so here I am in Los Angeles don't really have a broadcasting job I said you know what could help my broadcasting career would be to have the credibility of doing a book Hmm. And that's why I got into writing the first book is I had a relationship with Coach Lavin and I networked my way to some of the other coaches and got all four of them to greet. But, you know, for that book project, I had no experience writing. I did it on my own. I funded it myself. I got rejected by 31 publishers and the 32nd said yes uh, only when basically the season was done, did not give me much money. But I was just so thrilled to have a publisher that was interested in doing my book. And so that book was born out of necessity. The Fly on the Wall, I think, Noah worked 15 years ago. It, it, it has less importance now because of social media and technology. If you want to know what goes on in a football practice or a team meeting room, you can watch Hard Knocks, Cleveland Browns. Right. Or you could watch Alabama Tide, All Access on ESPN or some of the Showtime series, or the Drive on the Pac-12 network. So the things that I put into print 15 years ago, I don't know would be as enlightening or informative in today's world just because so many folks can already see that through self-produced content by the schools themselves.
0: How did you get those? You said you already had um, a relationship with Steve Lavin. How did you get those other coaches to agree?
1: I have no idea. Um, you know, Steve was on board and I looked around the country and I identified 10 to 15 coaches of who I thought could be compelling. I wasn't even going to try to go after a Mike Krzyzewski, um or a Dean Smith, a, because I doubt they would give me insight. And I think it would be so controlled that I wouldn't uh, enjoy the experience. So I was looking for different kinds of coaches. You know, Mike Bray had just gotten to Notre Dame after being a successful coach at the University of Delaware. I think the fact that I grew up in Delaware, using that connection with Mike kind of helped. And, you know, at that point, folks were not banging down Mike's door. Now, Bill Self was having success at Illinois, but certainly he's not the Bill Self that we all know of today. He was one of the young up-and-coming stars from Tulsa and Oral Roberts. And, you know, it's one of these things, Noah, where I found out from my next book every week of season when nine coaches gave me all access, all you need is one. Cause once you get one, someone else says, well, if that coach is letting them in, it would behoove us to do it too. Right. And there's a certain trust factor there. If they know that UCLA giving me all access, then why not Illinois or Notre Dame? And then when you get one of those, now you've got two, which makes it easier for the third coach to agree. So when I did the second book every week of season, I can't even remember to this day who was the first to commit out of the nine. Mm-hmm. But, you know, once I got one SEC school, I think that encouraged, it might've been Mark in Georgia. That made it easier to get Nick Saban at LSU, which made it easier to get Phil Fulmer at Tennessee, which then made it easier to get other schools. So, it's kind of a domino effect when you're trying to get these guys, you know, to trust you enough to let you in.
0: And it's still one of my favorites. And if you're listening, you can go on Amazon and still buy it. You ever still think about any one specific story from either one of those all-access books?
1: You know, it's really funny. I, I haven't thought of every week of season in a while, the football one, but I happen to be at a at a college football practice about two weeks ago, and I was standing there in the heat and I was reflecting back to all the practices because I went on the road for six months to write that book. And it's really interesting that very little has changed. I know what we see on the field has changed in terms of schemes and the spread offense and the RPOs and all that kind of stuff. But in terms of how practices are organized, there's a few more water breaks than there were 15 years ago, which is probably a good thing. But in terms of organization, it's, it's pretty much there. Um, but, you know, with the basketball book and the football book, you know, you realize when you go behind the scenes and for those who are un, never had the opportunity to, you realize all that goes into what we see on game day for two hours in basketball or three hours in football and how much sacrifice is made, not just by coaches, but by student athletes, by people in the marketing department, by people in facilities, by people in traffic, by the trainers, by the equipment people, everything that that goes into it. And so I think my fondest memories from those were just the, the poignant teaching moments. You know, seeing a head coach, you know, pull aside a walk-on and instructing a walk-on the best technique to block someone where – wasn't doing it for me and wasn't doing it for media, but just that kind of quiet offshoot thing kind of sticks with me. Some of the more memorable post game after wins and losses. And, um, you know, one thing the coaches do a lot, especially in football, they like focus and quiet. So if you play a football game, let's say on a Saturday, night, Noah, some coaches starting at lunch on Friday won't let players talk during any meals. This isn't like an hour before kickoff. This is, in some cases, a day, a day and a half before, because these coaches believe they want to be locked in. So you would, you, you would be sitting there a day before the game having lunch in a room with 120 people and no one's talking um, to each of their own, right?
0: That's awkward. Uh,
1: a little bit. Uh, now, remember, when I wrote those first two books, there weren't a lot of cell phones and things like that. Um, I was in with a team just this past weekend, and this coach allowed phones. Uh, this coach allowed conversation. I mean, it's all depending on where the coach kind of feels is best for the team.
0: Do you have a desire to go behind the scenes in another subject outside of sports?
1: I'd love to if if I could find the right thing. I mean, I, I am I'm just fascinated by people, and I think after. I've matured as a person and certainly having done eight books, you know, the things that stand out aren't the wins and losses or the sports. It's the people. It's, you know, the 9-11 book I wrote with the families of 9-11 and staying in touch with those families. Or one of my latest books is a World War II story called Fields of Battle and based on the 1942 Rose Bowl game. And only one of the 80 men who played and coached in that game is still alive. His name's Jim Smith, and he and I befriended each other. I talked to him last week. I talked to his daughter last night. He's going to be 97 next week. Yeah. So what I've really learned is it's the people that I connect with. So when you ask to fly on the wall, I think that formula can work anywhere. You could go spend a year you know, on the cancer ward at a famous cancer hospital. You could go spend a year with a fire department, right? I, I think, again, the key is finding those subject matter that lends itself to the written word as opposed to the visual depiction, because between all the uh, CSIs and law and orders <laughs> and documentaries that are made, we have a pretty good idea of what it's like now behind the scenes at a fire department, so mm-hmm. to speak. So you've got to find that, that, uh, that topic that works and that you can add something to the information about that topic that someone couldn't just get by going on YouTube.
0: Brian, I appreciate it. Thank you.
1: Thanks. Love it.
0: Everyone really should be as lucky as I am to have a Brian Curtis in his life. He's always thinking always willing to listen, offer advice, ask the right questions. And his books give details about events and people that would only be revealed to the most trustworthy of people, and that's who Brian is. I suggest you going on Amazon and ordering a few for yourselves and as gifts. If you want to suggest book topics for Brian, send them through my Twitter and Facebook at Noah Kozlov and at Instagram at Wawa Run, and I'll pass them on. I know there are thousands of you listening. Really, there are. There are thousands of you listening, so make the downloads count by subscribing to the podcast and rate and review it on iTunes. I don't use the word literally very much, but it literally takes 30 seconds to do that, and it means a ton. Thanks for taking the time to join us on The Follow-Up. The Follow-Up is a production of Vocal. For more information and more programming, please visit VocalNow.com. That's
1: V-O-K-A-L